0: Hey team, welcome to episode 56 of Transition Talk, where we talk about dental transitions and how to navigate the sometimes messy path to practice ownership. As we enter this new year, let's give a round of applause for 2020's exit. We're going to start this year with a focus on the seller. As you know, all our episodes and topics can be helpful to both the buyer and seller, but we often focus in a bit more on what the buyer should do, as we know the curriculums and most programs are lacking, and we know buyers entering private practice is what keeps this industry thriving. But since the world reopened after COVID, we've seen an influx of sellers who either had a plan prior to COVID or those who realized during the closure that they were ready for transition or simply wanted a partner to share ownership with. Regardless of the reason, when we look back at our topics, we realize that the seller side of things could use a little bit more love. So we have a few good episodes planned for you sellers, including today. Today, we're going to focus on the fact that as a seller, you are a leader. You are the driver of the transition from laying out the plan, providing the valuation and sharing your expectations. You as the seller need to know what you want and you need to know how to share it. So that's what we're going to talk about today. But before we dive in, Mr. Loretto, how was your holiday break?
1: That was fantastic, girl. A happy uh, squadcast <laughs> recording today.
0: <laughs> it's yes. cool, man. I love, I love
1: technology.
0: This is the first time you've recorded live from the Ratcliffe closet. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, we need to upgrade that closet. I, I, we need to cut you in on some bigger bonuses or something. I don't know.
0: <laughs> my husband would say the same thing. You're looking towards my unorganized side. I've got to rotate you so you can see all the organized, color-coded glory. Nice. Well, how was your break? Any any big twenty twenty one resolutions goals? You
1: know, twenty twenty uh, breaking into twenty one was more of house projects and things like that. So got a, got a chance to see the kids here from their school break. So some good quality time there. Christmas is a little odd. You, know, you kind of break up your families now and do little things. Saw the dad on the porch and all that. So it, it, it was great. It just it's good that we got all it's a little decompress. My 21 goal is to simply just motivate individuals just when it's right. You know, there's just times that you just can give that extra amount of encouragement, support, little fire in the rear to people in life. And it could be a stranger, Christy. It could be an employee. It could be your spouse. It just feels so good and right when you do it and you come from the right place. And I've always been that way. My mom taught me that and been doing more of it. And I think just saying it out loud helps you achieve your goals. is just to voice that opinion with others, social media, like, Hey, that's what I'm going to do. Call me out on it. Like how many people are you motivated lately, Charles? Like are you talking one-on-one with them? Tell them you can do this. So there you go. Just, it didn't have to be about work. It could be personal life too.
0: Yep. Absolutely. So my 2021 goal is not a goal or a resolution because I break those like no tomorrow. It's very odd personally, but I just have some intentions, right? So I'm just like set my intentions to be intentional, like with everything I'm doing. Like if I'm working, be like committed and intentional to that. Health-wise, I've been kind of lacking on that a little bit. So just kind of be a little bit more intentional and kind of my actions. And so that's my goal. So I'm not sure who can hold me accountable other than making sure I'm focused in when I'm talking to you. But that's kind of mine. I I feel like I set a bunch of goals in 2020, and they all kind of like bombed into the ground and burned. I'm sure COVID was part of that. But I'm like, you know what, that made me feel real bad about myself. So in 2021, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna focus on little small actions like every day that can hopefully make everything in my world a little bit better. So
1: we did a great job leading your team. And in, in 2020, we had a fantastic year with helping, I don't know, 100 plus uh, buyers and sellers do this thing. So congrats to you and your team for last year and super excited about uh, this year and helping people and, and, uh, one uh, podcast. Yeah,
0: yeah. So here we go. So uh, leadership is clearly important. A little good segue there. And so, as a seller and a transition, we expect at least on our front. If you're a seller who in, you know calls in DP because you want to transition, we're going to ask you a lot of questions. In fact, a lot of the things. We're going to talk about today. We're going to ask on that first call when you call us, we want you to know what you want because ultimately you drive the train, you tell us what to do. You, If you're not wanting to transition or you don't want to quit working for three or four years and you keep wanting to, you know, full steam ahead, we will absolutely tell you, you are not ready for us. Like it is time for you to, you go keep working and come back to us in a couple of years and we'll start talking about it then. So today is all about leadership and being a leader in transition and why that's important and what pieces you're expected to lead if you were a seller thinking about transition. And we're going to start super high level, just the type of sale. So let's walk through some types of sales and types of transitions that you as a seller might be able to explore and that might fit kind of what your long-term and short-term goals are. First is that, you know, associate to partner. I'm going to let you kind of expand on each of these. So what's, what's that associate to partner transition? Like when is that a good fit?
1: Well, a lot of times too, when you're an established doctor, you kind of don't know what it's like. Maybe it could be that first time you bring in the associate in, second time that because you know, the first one didn't work, or the third time because the first and second didn't work. And you don't want to really lay out the whole plan because you just don't know. And you're just kind of throwing it out there saying, hey, we're bringing you as an associate. And we'll quote unquote kind of talk partner down the road. You just don't have a plan at all. So to me, it's really just a, like a straight associate shift. And I, I think that the problem there is you've got risk with the, the person leaving. And you know I think if you don't have a plan about it, you don't really know if this is profitable and where it's going. And you kind of get jealous because the associate just leaves and you, you're there as an owner. Well, if you haven't been a leader and clearly lay out a plan for them, then I don't blame the quote unquote associate just to leave because you're not giving them any direction at all. So It truly is about having a plan before we bring these associate in and and even before we talk quote unquote partner, you need to know how this is going to work, impact you, impact your team, impact your patients. And so that's the easiest one is, hey, I just need an associate. And I think one of the things we can help you there, I can get you an attorney and get you an associate agreement, show you how it's going to work, run you a couple of break evens on at what point do you profit off the associate? What point to start making it, you know, does it make sense in order to kind of set you up? Uh, Your team does a great job of that, and we can talk about that on some of those first calls when that doctor just says, hey, I'm just looking for an associate at this phase. Can you help me? I don't want to sell the thing and figure out everything at this point but I just need some help on that associate even that something that simple Chrissy still needs a good plan uh, of how we go down this road
0: yep absolutely and I think all of these and we'll talk about a couple more I think all of them are going to depend on how much longer you want to be in practice clinically and how you want to practice during that time right an associate is risk and opportunity but it also requires you to manage but maybe that's okay because you want some downtime to be able to step back and have you know a non-financial benefit. Associate to partner is I wanna most likely grow my business and I wanna grow it and I want someone to do it and I'm maxed out with what I can do. So I need someone else to help me do that. And this is kind of a path that I can lay out for that person. Another option is probably what we see most often in transition, which is that full sale. Right, I'm someone. I'm at the age. I want to be done within the next year or two years. So I want to start searching for that person, or I have this person, and I want to sell 100 percent of the business. And I either want to be done immediately, or I want to work back. So, what are your thoughts on kind of that full sale, and and kind of how the people you talk to, like how do you know that they're there whenever they call you?
1: Yeah, I'm expanding on the associate partner. I'm gonna come back to the full. So okay. when we think about the associate, remember. As you alluded to, as a clinician, depending on specialty, you can only do so much work, so many root canals, so many ands and starts, so many clinical procedures and check and hygiene. There's only so much you can do. So that's always where you're maxed out, can't do any more. You bring the associate in, either have a plan about executing a partnership or not. has a lot to do with number of new patients, active patients, and how quickly the thing grows. Because if it truly grows from like a million, two million, three to like a two million, you're at risk if that associate leaves. It is now a two doctor practice from that point forward. So you almost need to create some type of equity position or overpay the associate to essentially keep them there. But the goal, again, if you can pull the equity out of the business, it can really help you from a financial planning standpoint and really lock in kind of the security of where that business is going to go. Because now we, it doesn't have to stop at a two million. You can go to two, five, and three, four, and five. So there's different ways that we can pull equity out. We can sell a little bit on the along the way. We can sell to private equity in the end. We can just sell to an associate. There's lots of different ways, now, I do like that staggered kind of. Let's grow it together and sell a, a bit along the way. But you don't have to go that route. You could easily do the more traditional. Hey, I've got a million dollar practice. You know, when I know a guy or gal's ready, is they call me up and they say, Charles. I'm 62 years old or whatever the age is. I've got a million-dollar practice. It's got a 55% overhead. I'm financially set. i got a GPR I've been talking to. They can do the work. They're finishing the program out of Maryland in, in June. They're starting in the practice. I need to get a plan on how to sell the practice. I think practices are worth 85% or so. The dude wants to give me $850, sign me up. I'll sell it to him a year from now, I'll sell it to him now. I really don't care. I got the building, he wants to buy it, I'll lease it. I'm in. Help me out. Okay. Those are perfect. Because it, it's somebody who's very humble, flexible. They got the person. Financial plan is set. So if you're a listing seller and that's you, and you just need the execution, you got the buyer, that by far is the easiest person to assist. Nine out of ten people are not them. You know, nine out of ten are not that easy where they know it, you know, I have it all figured out. There's usually more complexity and they're trying to figure out, maybe I do the associate thing because I'm tired. Maybe I do the partner thing. Maybe I sell it out right but I really need to work back because I'm not 65. And I need to get to social security. My financial planner says this. So there's a lot of this that has to do with really understanding their personal finances which I love to do with the seller so they can sell me on the fact that this, they're ready, not messing around. They are 100% ready and that's what I love to work with. If not, kind of need to pull them back and basically say, we're gonna need to do one of these other three options and then let's talk about what that looks like.
0: Yeah, and I think understanding like all of those components in relationship to the transition, like a lot of people just say, "Look, well, I'm just tired and I'm 55 and so I've got some years left, but I don't know what I wanna do. Well, what does your financial plan say? Like, what do you want going to do? Like if you sell or if you bring on a part, like, what are you, are you a partnership person? Or are you not like, what are you right? Like, I think that's a lot of the, they, they know they're tired and they want to fix this one problem, but this one problem is related to all these other problems. And so they don't really have that data when they come to the table to figure out like, how do I fix this transition issue or know that I have a transition issue without kind of all the other pieces.
1: Quick, quick, quick! Story is super funny. So, a client we work with, orthodontist out on the East Coast, had that moment of "I'm out." I'm just like, this was a little over a year ago. Tapped out. I'm done. I, I want to sell. Tells his advisor, I, I, "I'm done. It's came waters right I'm done." So we come into the picture, meet him, and says, "Sure, we'll, we'll list the practice and sell it." And his advisor says, "We're not selling that practice. No freaking way. I mean, dude, you've got a million dollar lake house that you just bought. You've got this. You've got that." Your lifestyle's out of control. You're spending like twenty eight to $30,000 a month after taxes. Dude, we're not doing this. If you can show me six months of this lower lifestyle and you can get rid of the lake house that you don't go to, then if we sold the practice for this and you lease the building for this, I'll let you do it. And he looked at him and said, done. And the wife looked at him like, I, I don't believe it, but we'll see. And the, You know, they did it, you know, so- you got to have that that financial plan that's telling you that you can do this. And so when you're asking me, when do you know they're ready? I know they're ready when they tell me and I know when their financial plan or at least they're telling me their financial plan is working.
0: Yep, absolutely. And then another option too is, which we kind of alluded to a bit, but you know, we have partnerships and longer term partnerships, but there's also shorter term partnerships and more of like a staggered sale where you say, hey, I know I want to be done in five years and I've got someone. And this aligns. Like, we have actually have two clients we're working with right now where the one I'm thinking about are, are two women, and one is exiting kind of childhood years and one is entering childhood years. And so the timing of them two and being able to, like, one to slowly work, start working more, and the other to start working less aligned. And so, you know, it was the same situation. Like, I don't know how to make this work, but I'm kind of done and I want to be done at this point. And I kind of have this person, but I don't really know how to put it together. That was at least enough guidance in what their goals were in order to be able to put together a plan. They were able to define enough, right? They didn't know exactly how to make it work, but they knew what they wanted and they knew what they didn't want and they knew what they needed. And like those three things together allow us to kind of structure a plan and say, okay, based on what you've said, here's what we think is the best option. Does this work for you seller? Yes. Okay, perfect. Now we're going to go present that to the buyer and we have something to present, right? And I think that's the goal of all of, of talking about the type of sale. The type of sale determines the type of person you search for and the type of person you have if that fits what they need, right? There's two people with two sets of goals and two timelines personally and professionally. And both of you can say you're flexible all day long and that doesn't get us anywhere, right? Like I love flexibility. I want you to be flexible, but I need you to tell me what you really need and want so that we can then see are you on even the same platform playing field, that we can find a solution that fits what both of you want and need. And you can use that flexibility.
1: So I know you're talking about, and, and I'll give you the example of that story. So the million dollar practice has about a 55 to 60% overhead. So let's just make it simple. at 60%. The business nets 400 grand. Well, this is a one doctor practice. This is not a two doctor practice, but because this situation for these two individuals, the fact that the associate with spousal income and kids are kind of where they're at, it works for them to essentially make half of that 400 grand at 200 each and that partnership actually works because again, my seller in this example, over a five year period, as long as you can get them to slowly stagger out and pull the equity out this way, that works for that seller. And then again, that works for this buyer. And one of the things that's brilliant about your team is is the fact that they clean up all these financials. They can look at your doctor production numbers, both. uh, I've got doctor one, doctor two, and hygiene, all my direct fixed costs, and basically show them, okay, year one, year two, year three, if I take my clinical numbers and start adjusting them along the way, and your buy-ins happen and your debts happen this way, this actually is going to start really making sense for you, buyer, and the bank, because I can see how the cash flows after debt are going to make sense for you then present that to the buyer. Yes, that makes present that to the seller, helping them pull the equity out, slowing down. And essentially they're able to see it from a numbers perspective. And then now at that point, it's easy for our team to now execute through through legal. A bigger picture, more realistic picture is a doctor I talked to today, a million five collection, husband and wife, five operatories, throwing it out there, got a D4 that's coming in, What do I do? Bring the associate in. What does it look like modeling up to grow the practice from a million, five million, six million, seven million, eight? At what point does he buy in? In this case, he wants to do a staggered buy in that perhaps, you know, like a partnership and then eventually buy him out. You do it through the numbers and show them how that's all going to work. It really motivates the parties because they can see kind of what's in it for them from a financial standpoint. And what's mostly unclear to people is they just don't know how it's going to work. I mean, they can get the concept of the dental part of chair one, two, and mentoring the part that they like, but the building and the numbers and the taxes and what to do, that's the financial part that is the unknown and clearly is the emotional part. It messes the deal up.
0: Yep, absolutely. And I think that kind of leads into our next point, which is kind of ties in nicely, because it's all about Timing, right? Like, there's clearly the more logistical piece of this, which is when do you want to close, right? And that's that kind of goes more for that full sale. But there's also the questions of like, if you're selling, how do you want to work back? And then the bigger overarching question of like, when do you want to be done, right? All three of those are timing questions and they all kind of have different impacts depending on the type of transition that we just talked about. Let's start with when you want to be fully done. We talked about this as we prepared for this episode and you were like, that's my first question I ask at any point in time. Why is it your first question?
1: well it could be when do you want this associate to start it could be if we're going to create a partnership because i've got a 45 year old with four kids and it's a million five practice that doesn't make sense for them to sell the whole thing then when do you want to potentially execute the associate to start or when do you want to execute the partnership because then i can take the financial information and see if, if, if is that going to make sense for for this to work and Talk about value. You know, you're going to take a pay cut. You, you know, you're doing a million five by yourself. You're making seven hundred grand with a good overhead, and you're going to bring this person in in one year and make them a partner because that's what you said you were going to do. You understand that you're going to take a significant pay cut, or you need to anticipate a probably sixty percent growth, even to make something something near. So, I always want to know what your timelines of what you're thinking about because then I'm starting to play with the math in the practice to see how that's all going to play out. What obstacles are we going to be faced with, with that answer? Uh, and certainly I want to, when I think about someone that says, I'd like to sell the practice and, you know, work five years. Like I say, okay, you telling me that you're, how old are you? I always start with that. Cause you tell me you're under 55 and you're telling me five years. I question that because most people don't stop at 60. You'd like to stop at 60. Most people don't. But you tell me 62, you tell me five years. I probably believe that. So then let's start walking through what that process looks like and set expectations so we can execute by 67 and then you know follow a plan there. So it, it's so important just to me to see their kind of envision and then easily kind of start working back through it.
0: Yep, absolutely. And I want to focus on the uh, work back and closing piece, because I think that that's important, because oftentimes those are two kind of very up in the air numbers. If you're doing a full sale, you don't know who the buyer is going to be, maybe because you've listed your practice and we're searching for someone or someone's searching for someone. And you might know ultimately, like when you for sure want to be done, you might have a goal, but you don't actually know once you find that buyer, because you don't know who that buyer is going to be or what they're going to look like or what their experience will be or kind of what their abilities will be. And so I think it's important again, to have that goal. So like, when do you want to close? Like if ideally, if I could find you someone in the next two or three months, would that be too fast? I always take a big vacation in June of every year. And so I'd love to have it completed by that point. You know, I want to be done by the time I'm 65 and I'm 64 and I just had my birthday. And so I'd have a year, like whatever that timing is, is important. And then once you find a person, right, you are going to be subject to maybe their notice period, or they have to move across the country to come to where you are, whatever that might be. So we have to be flexible, but again, knowing if that you want something as quick as possible, Or if you're okay with a three to six month transition time, because that's kind of what the buyer wants and the buyer is going to feel comfortable saying, Hey, that this is what I would prefer. And I know this works for you. So this works for us. So again, just kind of knowing what you want so you can vocalize that and you can always vocalize it with a caveat of, but I'm flexible if this doesn't work. Right. But you're kind of putting out what you want so that the other party can start to kind of form an idea of what it might look like to transition with you. That's, that's a big thing for me.
1: My ideal seller client is someone that just comes with a blank canvas and says, help me paint my picture. And I can think about two people that never hired. I hope they solve their problem. But uh, same thing on the timing. This was about maybe 14 months from their end goal. So I think it would have been, it would have been this summer, so 21 June. So it would have been somewhere around April or something. I was talking to them and they basically said, well, we want to be done in june of this it was like two doctors working in a really a busy one doctor practice maybe doing like one five great overhead beautiful office i mean i could help them with their transition easily I just I mean, call back maybe they will but hey we want to be done in june of 21. Uh, let me help you now <laughs> you know please let me start creating a plan of what that's going to look like The best case scenario is I can clean up your financials, market that, set expectations for the buyer, present that to the buyer, and let them know that June is our closing date because that's what works for our two sellers. Two things that they had in their mind that created this June closing date, 65, which was on one of them, and their lease was up. Okay, seller, heads up. You cannot sell your practice without a lease. I can't tell you, do not strategize your transition because your lease is up or you're on some month to month. If you do not think this is a problem, it is a problem according to the buyer and according to a very important resource called a bank. So they do not like to lend on month to month transactions. Now we got to create value, get the new lease assigned. It just, please let's lay this canvas out and, and to be able to see what hurdles we have in front of us so that we can lay all this out. So, oh my
0: gosh, I am so glad you said that because I have had two clients or potential clients who have had that very th- same thing. They're like, well, I've got to get this transition done in the next three months because my lease is up. And I'm like, my ultimate advice is like, if you're going to transition, keep running your practice like you're not going to transition it because there's a chance that you won't, right? There's a ch- There's always a chance. We're talking human nature and banks and COVID and all these things that, something happens and it doesn't happen on the exact timeline you want. So keep running your practice. You know, yes, I agree. Negotiate maybe a good lease with a good rate, shorter term with maybe longer options. So negotiate an assignment clause, negotiate an ability for you to get out if it is assigned, like negotiate all those things, but have a lease in place that is going to allow a buyer to kind of take it over. That's fair. We're working for a buyer right now and the seller did not negotiate a lease. And so the buyer's having to do that. And the landlord's being a little finicky with him and he's potentially going to walk away from the deal because the landlord who the seller has no control over is not working and showing some goodwill. So again, it just goes to the fact of don't let someone else mess up your deal from a landlord perspective. So timing wise, that's, that's a big one.
1: There's zero leverage for the buyer. If the seller goes and says, Hey, I'm going to sell this practice for a million bucks and I've been your $7,000 tenant forever, this guy's going to buy. Tenants like, Sweet, I'm going up on the rent in 10 years. Buyer's like, Hey, I'm going to go hire X Realty to guide me through this process and I want to negotiate with X amount of TI and X amount of this and pay five because that's what market is. That's not going to happen. No, it's not going to happen. So now all of a sudden the buyer feels like they're being cheated. And so they love to practice, but they hate the real estate part. The emotion says to walk away. Super important.
0: Yeah. And Then let's talk about work back. So, I mean, that's another kind of timing thing that we feel like From my perspective, I need to understand if I'm helping a buyer or if I'm helping a seller, I need to know how much you're gonna work back so that I can show, again, when I go back to those cash flows, I can show a buyer what their cash flows are gonna be. If you say, hey, I need to make $250,000 a year for the first year, and then I need to make 100,000 the second year because that's what my plan says, I hope your cash flows work for that, right? And I hope that your practice is big enough to support that. It may be a case where we can, rather, Than you going down the road too far with a buyer and, and then realizing this, we might be able to figure that out early on in the process that, hey, what you're needing doesn't make sense or what you're wanting to do clinically doesn't make sense to the buyer. And let me show you why. On the flip side, I also don't want you to say, oh, I'm super flexible, just like maybe like one day a week when really you want to work two or three days a week. Right. I don't want you to just say something because you feel like it's what the buyer wants to hear, because at some point in time in the transition process, you'll feel the need to tell them what you really want to do. And now we might be further down and now we've got to renegotiate something we've already talked about. So again, just kind of thinking about what you want to do post-close and how involved you want to be. Is it clinical? Is it just shaking hands? Is it just introducing referrals? Do you think you can work for someone? You know, all of those considerations, like the more you thought you put into that, the more clear of a picture that we can paint for the buyer as we look to present a plan.
1: Yeah, I I love in those interviews, just like what is your thought process on you working back? Is it one day? Is it two days? Is it three days? I can look down at your clinical production and see that you're averaging $6,000 a day on a busy day and you got a million dollar practice or it's a half a million dollar practice and you're doing $3,000 days. And so, how do you feel about, you know, doctor working back in the practice one day a week? Yes. Okay, if I budget $3,000 a day and budget you for X amount of days and I paid you 30%, that's going to have you a check for this year for about $50,000. Does that sound reasonable? Yeah, Charles, that sounds perfect. That's kind of what I was thinking. Perfect. Now I can build the model. out, show the buyer and say, buyer, seller wants to sell the practice for this price. Here's the work back. He's thinking one day a week. She's thinking one day a week, two days, whatever it is. Here's the clinical production goals that we've got set for her, set for you. And uh, here's what the cash flow is going to look like. Let's get this presented over the bank, get them signed off on it. Everybody's on the same page. And so now we're not just, he or she wants to be there, introduce patients, but yet now we're putting clinical work on their books and paying them. It's like, let's don't get into that. Let's just set it up to almost like what you said, Christy, is let's look, see how much money you need to make. You don't need to work. You, you don't want to. Perfect. Okay, but maybe the extreme example is million five practice is super busy and you only want to work one day a week. And this person that's 27, 28 years old, has only been out one year and been working on children versus adults and you got an adult-driven practice, then you may need to be around longer because you need to help them with the clinical aspect of this practice. And so you may want to work one day, but now all of a sudden the buyer and the bank are requiring you to do three just to help because it is a busy practice.
0: Yeah. And I think, again, it goes towards if you engage us to find you a person in a full sale situation, that's one of the questions we'll ask you and we really need to know, because that also guides who your right buyer is, right? If you have a big practice and you only want to work back a couple days a week, then we're not going to find you someone straight out of school who you're going to have to mentor a ton who can't do your production. So it's just important to know what you want to do and what you need to do so that we can figure out how to structure the plan. Plan that makes sense.
1: I, I got a question because I get this a lot and, and we talk about timing. Let's talk about your team for a second. So when a, a buyer comes to you and says, hey, this practice for sale, we ideally want to close in the next you know, 60 and 90 days. Is that enough time for your team to kind of take the information and get them to close? Is that a realistic When you're working with a buyer, the seller's got their own team and they're delivering everything. What's the timing that it takes for your team to represent that buyer and
0: execute? Yeah. So we talked a little bit about this in a pre post COVID episode, pre COVID 30 days, we could get something done, right? Like super quick. It's taking a little longer now. I mean, I still think if you want a deal done within 90 days, if you have all of your ducks in a row, you know, you kind of know what you want. You're real clear in your intentions. We can absolutely get something done within 60 to 90 days. Now I, will say there's a lot of transitions that take a lot longer than that, right? Because they come to us very early in the stage. They don't know what their price is. They don't really have anyone or if they do, they're very early in the discussions. So some of them do take longer, but I would say our average transition is probably about three months. Unless again, timeline wise, it's like you have a client who's ahead of the game and we have quite a few right now who are planning for a July 1st close because they're finishing programs. They have to move notice periods, They just need time to make sure all that happens. But again, everyone's a little bit different. Some people need that time to process and do their diligence and feel comfortable. And others are say, hey, I've been an associate for a really long time and I'm ready to move and let's do this. So I would say roughly 90 days is probably enough time to get that done.
1: So your team doing evaluation less than 90 days is not doing evaluation. Obviously, that's something to help on the buyers, helping your the sellers. They have the associate. Let's create some type of strategy on, on creating some type of equity position there through the legal agreements, You know, through all of that. I know that your team also represents a lot of doctors if they have a private equity event and clean up the financials and work with, with that. So realistically from a timing standpoint, like a 90 days or less, obviously some can be more complicated, but that's all realistic on with your team.
0: Yeah. If you think about it, most of the delay comes from just communication, right? And it's more of, it's not a, hey, it takes a long time for our team to respond. That's not it, right? But a you as a client, buyer or seller, you have a job, you have a full-time job where you can't step away during the day, right? There's legal agreements to review, attorneys, banks. So once you start kind of putting that communication time, but there are clients we have worked with who have their teams and say, hey, this is my goal, I'm closing in 60 days, they're on it, they respond immediately, they give us everything they need and we are done and it's done well. So it, it really is dependent on your goals. But yeah, 90 days or less is is extremely doable if that's what you and your buyer want.
1: Okay. I know there's a lot of firms out there that do this work. And I know a lot of times people, when they finally get to this decision, they're ready for execution. And so uh, it's a big thing and I know you've done a good job with just leading that charge and making sure your team is extremely responsive and so it's one thing for the seller to have a plan you know for them personally but then having a team that can execute obviously in a, in a, in a timely manner so okay let's talk about too just on values like you are the valuation specialist here the CVA You know, Miss Christy Ratcliffe with uh, six letters and a comma behind her name, you know, that we all look up to and admire. Talk about price and value. So tell me when you're looking at a practice, what are the conversations you're having? I know I talk high level with people, you talk high level. What are your thoughts on just values and prices?
0: Yeah. So we're going to have a episode all about this and expectations versus reality. I think it's episode 58. So in a couple episodes. But here, I just kind of want to touch on this briefly because I think it's important from a that whole be a leader if I'm a seller thing. I think it's important to come to the table with what you want or what your expectation is in regards to price or value important for a lot of reasons one i think you need to have done your research on what are the normals what am i expecting what do i need for my financial plan like all of those things we've talked about today and i also think it's important because this is not a problem for the sellers we work with because this is our job right if someone engages ndp to help you as a seller our first priority is to come up with a price that we think is reasonable and show you the cash flows and do that. I run into this a lot when I'm working with buyers who are working with sellers who are not engaged by us, or they don't have anyone at all helping them. And they say, well, I just, you know, something that's fair, but they give no guidance whatsoever on the price. They don't give them a price. They don't give them a valuation. They don't have their CPA giving them something. They don't give them a percentage range. They literally just say, you kind of come to me with something. I hate that. I mean, to be blunt, I think it puts so much pressure on the buyer because the buyer doesn't want to be disrespectful to the seller they don't want to undercut or overcut you know overpay we can tell them what's normal but what's normal is a pretty big range right and i can tell you what i would price it at you know if we were listing the practice which is what we typically will do in that instance but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what the buyer or the seller is expecting and so it just puts the buyer in a real awkward position and really honestly puts this responsibility that's not theirs onto them and so as a seller what i would encourage you to do is do some research, call us up, kind of talk to your colleagues, just kind of get an understanding of what's normal and then take an objective look at your practice and say, okay, what does that look like for my practice and what would I need or consider normal? Talk to your financial advisor, your CPA and say, what do i need to get from the sale so you know the range of what you need versus what might be fair because they could very well be two different things and then you know like i said be objective everyone's practice is so special I and mean, it's the best practice in the entire world and no one you know it's worth so much more i agree with you there's an intangible value to like what you have and what you own and it's priceless but we got to put a number on it and so let's think about that from a buyer's perspective
1: Oh, I, I got so many hot topics on this. Oh, my God. If I heard, Charles, I don't think you understand what the Florida market's like. Charles, I don't think you understand my name and my how many letters I have behind my name and my practice and my patience. You know, actually, the more you tell me how significant your practice is, probably the higher risk it is for the buyer to purchase it. Because you're telling me it's it, it should be worth more because of all the equipment you got. Now you're telling me that people flying from around the country to see you. Uh, that actually is a bigger risk than anything. That's going to actually hurt the value of your practice because you're going to have less buyers that are, are going to be interested. What's the easiest sell is a crown and bridge practice with a 50% overhead. That yeah may have some outdated equipment but it's in a decent location. And uh, there's a lot of upside to grow the thing because it doesn't have maybe all the technology and they're not doing all the high end procedures that the other guy was doing. So they can essentially grow the practice. And so all I would say here is just, I think the word you have here, Christy, on our outline is just objective. Just be humble about it. Be open to having someone else in the business look at it and have that objective opinion about the business because it can fluctuate with significance from 60% or 40% of collections to 100% of collections. So the best example I can give you is oral surgery practice we work with in Ohio it did 1.3 million collections, three days a week, and had less than a 30% overhead. The thing made a million dollars. The value? I don't know what the value was. Five hundred thousand, six hundred thousand. You know what it sold for? It sold for zero. It sold for zero dollars. You know why? There's no buyer. The guy closed the doors. Marketed on the Amos website. We marketed. We marketed everybody we knew. Not a buyer. So, you, you know, it's not just on how unique and what a great location in this city is. You've got to have a buyer. and Don't tell me that private equity valued it at $4 million on your $3 million business. Therefore, that's the value for my associates to purchase it for because that's what private equity, that's, you're close-minded if you think that is realistic and fair. And it's not right. If you want $4 million for that practice and the private equity firm has offered it, What we need to do is negotiate a a higher number than four million and maybe get another private equity offer that's better than that for four and a half or five and not even think about the associate thing. So the associate thing, you just can't compare to the private equity space. And I know we've got other episodes lined up this year to to, to focus more on that, but to really be open minded about uh, and be objective about the value of this business is important. Have that conversation early on. So we set this stage up for the rest of this transaction.
0: Yeah. And I think knowing what your cash flows are and knowing what that price means to the buyer and being able to show them what that looks like, right? Any buyer is going to look at any price. I don't care what size practice and is going to have a heart attack that they're going to have to be responsible for that sum of money, right? 500000 million whatever the number is it's probably the largest sum of money other than maybe their student loan debt which they already are stressed out about so our goal when we get a seller engage us and they have a transition is to put out the cash flows come up with a price and then show a buyer here's what your debt service is going to be here's what the seller is going to want for a work back or here's an estimate of what you would pay them because we already know that cuz we've talked about it and here's what you're going to be left over with if those numbers don't work a buyer will not move forward. And more importantly, a bank will not fund that buyer to move forward. And so understanding that kind of helps put whatever price you have in mind into perspective. Just like you just were talking about have a client whose seller has a you know private equity price and is offering them not that price, but a still extremely premium price. And the cash flows just don't make sense for this client. And we've had multiple conversations about there's a lot of reasons to buy. And if this is your practice and this is what you want to do, then do it, but do it with your eyes open of this is what it looks like. And when the client takes this data back to their seller, um, the seller's just like, well, there's all these other benefits of ownership. But yeah, that's not what a buyer is. A buyer needs to understand cash flows and a buyer needs to have the ability to make more money and have that cash flow and be able to see that opportunity. So again, just being objective and being educated and putting out the plan and understanding what a buyer is going to look at, those things are going to help set you up for making sure that whatever value, price, financial scenarios you're presenting are well-received and accepted.
1: Yeah. And I I like putting a higher price, working with a seller and being able to say, look, I know I told you that the practice valuation will be somewhere between call it 70 and 85% in general, but there are times it just like, it comes in higher, but it's always the same story over and over and over again of the reason the practice value came in higher it made more money. And I have no problem charging the buyer more money for the practice because it valued higher based on the cash flow. And then now all of a sudden, Christy, would you take that higher value with that debt service, it still is a no brainer for the buyer, no brainer for the bank. That is all the win, win, win. So that that's when you can be a little more picky and be a little bit more you know, ask for that premium. Hey, I know that the valuation came in at 85%. If you want to buy this for sale at 90 or 92%, I, listen, it's a buyer seller's market, depending on where you're at. If you're a seller and you got that amazing practice, you want to command higher, that's totally up to you. I respect that. And if we can find a buyer for that, I respect that. And I'll execute that and still sell it to the buyer. That makes sense because in the end, what amount of production do you do? What amount of hygiene do you check? What amount of endo do you do, Etc. How long a day are you working? How much do you get paid? It's pretty simple. And this is your life for 20 to 30 years. And if you can tell me that I'm going to make more over here with a little bit more debt, I'm probably going to steer you to the one that it makes more money with a little more debt because it makes sense.
0: Yeah. And so I think just that, you know, the price and again, timing and all those pieces, it's just really, we all kind of always funnel back to education and communication, like make sure you educate yourself if you're a seller going into this. The last piece of this, and, and again, I think we've covered this across these topics, but I really want to just kind of go over this one more time as we wrap this episode up. And why does this matter? Like, why is it important that you're a leader? You know, I can't tell you how, how many times we have been contacted and and we come into a deal when the buyer and seller have already been talking for months. And what that does is it kind of creates a little bit of deal fatigue. Like both people have feel like they have been on a treadmill running for months and nothing is accomplished. And that is a bad place to be because transitions once you kind of start the meat of it are, you know, 90 days, three months, they're emotional. There's a lot of going on. You still have your personal and professional life going on at the same time as this big, big thing that's happening. And so, you know, I think having a clear picture from the front and having kind of a team or, or a clear direction of what you're presenting just kind of can make the whole process feel less stressful and feel more efficient. And so that deal fatigue is big. And so the more a seller has a plan, the better off the entire process will go. And then, you know, we also just don't want to make the buyer, this is a very anxiety ridden process for most buyers. They know it's a big deal. You know, they respect the person they're buying the practice from. They don't want to offend them. They don't want to be disrespectful. They still want to make sure they're not just offering top dollar because that's, they just feel like they have to because there's nothing else out there. So I just feel like as a seller, be a leader, take charge of the situation. It is your, probably your biggest asset and you're selling it and it's your life's work. And so just, you know, take control of that and really focus in on these big, big rocks. We have an episode called big rocks. And that's, that's what we're talking about here. What is the price? What is the timeline? What is the work back so that you can kind of have the transition and transition like, like you ultimately want to.
1: I can think of a, a dental meeting I went to up in the northeast, and I stayed at this hotel. And it was back to back years. I stayed at this same hotel. It was at the Waterford, and up in Boston, the Yankee meeting or something. And I happened to stay, and they happen to have these evening classes. And literally, it is a art teacher. Usually, you know, the boyfriend and girlfriend are there, and they're showing the couple how to paint like this river and the trees and and all this. And so, back to my analogy of a canvas. If you don't have an instructor, what happens is you're just looking at a picture without any guidance and you're trying to paint on your own. What happens is if you're not an artist, you mess up the canvas. So you kind of come to us sometimes with, we've been talking about this for six months. We said this, this, and this. We said this, this, and this. And sometimes it can mess up the artwork. And the artwork is about the deal and about laying everything out and and being now, now to be able to say, hey, let's do it this way. This is why. This makes more sense for you, buyer, more sense for you, seller and let's paint the picture this way because many times we might get somebody in the and the the buyer and seller as a gp they said yeah they've agreed they're going to do the valuation before the d4 gets in the door i'm not going to do a valuation for a d4 because they asked for one seller why would you do that? that that's part of the canvas that you you've already made a bad stroke on we're not going to value this business as a, as a general practice before they get there it's just you know i love my buyers i got relationships with thousands of them all across the country and christy we've lectured you know we have a following of these young people but i I, I, there's times where i I side with the seller we're going to value the business as a seller after the d4 gets in there are there times i'm going to value before yes pediatric dentist, i may do that yes surgeon i might do that sure are there examples of an yes i might in certain circumstances but i i kind of need to see that it's back to just the canvas and back to let's just kind of set this things up and and don't wear the deal out and say, we said this, this, and this, and then we can put it together. It just may not be as efficient for the parties. And so that's what I love about these episodes. We can put our thoughts and and visions down for people to listen to, to learn from, and so they can go through this process with the least amount of mistakes
0: as possible. Love it. Canvas. Canvas. I think that might be your first non-dating analogy. I didn't have one dating analysis. Oh, no, wait. I'll
1: come back with dating next week. Don't worry, girl.
0: <laughs> all right, team. That's all we have for today. Thanks for joining us on episode 56 of Transition Talk. Thanks for another year of talking about all things transitions. We love doing what we do and love talking transitions with you. Make sure you share the transition love with those who may not know of us yet. And of course, subscribe to Transition Talk wherever you listen to your podcast. Till next week, friends.
1: See ya.